verse 7. Pastor Bill will be preaching the message called Grace, Nice or Necessary. And I'll read from the ESV, verses 7 through 16. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up. Hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the, Lord, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line, and we are continuing our study this morning in the book of Jonah. It's a book that unpacks the nature of God's radical grace. It's his grace for people who don't deserve it. And as we see his grace for people who don't deserve it, we also get a glimpse of his heart for people who desperately need this grace and who are completely unaware of it. Today's passage is no exception. Today's passage is all about the dangerous result of sin, how sin brings about the judgment of God. And we're going to see that it's a judgment that you can't avoid, a judgment that you can't escape. It's a scary kind of judgment, but this passage is more than just about judgment. It's also about atonement. It's how judgment can be satisfied if someone will sacrifice themselves for your sake to save you from that judgment. It's a wonderful passage. It's full of glorious themes that I'm afraid could fall flat for many of us this morning. Flat because the things that the modern world highlights are not the things that this passage highlights. This passage highlights sin, judgment, and atonement. Those are not parts of the modern secular worldview. They're not categories of thought in our minds for how we make sense generally of the world all around us. Take sin, for instance. You rarely hear anyone talk about sin in modern discourse. And when you do, they either tend to sneer at it, to, to mock it as an outdated kind of way of thinking, or they use it as a hyperbolic description, as a way of emphasizing that in their opinion, something's really, really, really bad. It's so bad that it's a sin. But when they say that, they don't mean that someone has committed treason against the Holy Creator. They don't mean that someone has violently offended God and that they have violated his character, that they've taken the love and the loyalty that they owe him and they've given it to something else. Modern people don't mean that. And so sin does not show up as a modern category of thought. That doesn't show up as a way of understanding, processing yourself, processing the world around you. Same is true for judgment. 
No one in the public sphere talks about the judgment of God that is taking place now in small doses. No one talks about the judgment of God as this thing that is coming, this final thing that is so horrific that even as we contemplate it, it starts to change the way that we react in this present moment. Nobody talks about it like that. There are the occasional religious professional who ties natural disasters and diseases to God's judgment, but the way they, they do that often comes out kind of kooky. God's judgment against sin is not a functional category that modern people use to make sense of their world. And because sin and judgment are not modern categories, atonement, a sacrificial payment made by one person for the sake of another, atonement is also not a functional category. It's not functional because it's just not necessary. If you get rid of sin and judgment, you don't need atonement. And frankly, then, atonement comes across as offensive to modern ears. The modern world has abandoned an objective moral standard given by God that's equally binding on everyone. And so the primary problem in the secular West is not from within. It's not something that we need to be rescued from that comes from within us. The primary problems of life are things from without, things that happen to us, things that we don't have any control over. Our biggest problems are not from within. They are things that happened in our upbringing. They're things that happen in the larger society. They are things that happen in our genetics or in our brain chemistry. They are something that's outside of our control. And therefore, those then are the primary problems that are underneath all of our other problems. And when that's the case, atonement is not the primary solution. Now, Scripture does address all of those other issues mostly puts them under the category of suffering. And in that sense, Scripture says those are very real problems. They have real impacts on you. They are really difficult to live with, and they are overwhelming at different times, but they do not cause you to be the way that you are. And therefore, they're a secondary-level problem, not a primary-level problem. Modern world disagrees and says, no, those are primary. They're the real cause of what's wrong in the world, and to deal with them, you don't need sacrificial atonement. Get rid of that. You need something else. You need education, you need medicine, you need politics, you need something else to deal with these real problems. And so sin, judgment, and atonement are not core essential elements of a modern worldview. They're not part of the conceptual apparatus that modern people use to understand their world, to understand what's wrong with it, and then to understand what do we do about what's wrong with this world. So here's my concern for this morning. If you live in a world where sin and judgment are not real problems, then grace for you will not be a real solution. If atonement is not necessary for you to live well in this world, then grace is not necessary either. Grace is what? It's nice, but it's not necessary for daily life. It ends up in a different category, one that gets added to this larger worldview, one that gets sort of glued on, stuck on to this ro more robust functional categories of a secular worldview. Those become the categories that, uh, that control how we think, how we feel, and how we act in the modern world. And that means that I can spend all morning unpacking the riches of this passage. And you can spend all morning doing the hard work of staying with me, of thinking through these categories, of testing them, of taking notes, of talking about them later. You, you can even do the hard work of agreeing with them. You can do all that and yet walk away and they will have absolutely no impact on how you live the rest of this week. 
And if you think about it, you realize that's really easy to do. It's really easy to think about things, to agree to them, to assent to them being true, and then walk away and not have them impact how you actually functionally live. For instance, if I ask you what relationship the earth has to the sun, not a single one of you would say to me, oh, well, I think of our solar system in a pre-Copernican kind of way. I place the earth at the center and the sun revolves around the earth. Not a single one of you would say that to me. We, you would all say, no, it, we, we live in a heliocentric solar system. The sun is at the center and the earth revolves around it. That's how you all think. You know that that's true. And yet not one of you would ever say to me, you know, I was out this morning and you should have seen what happened at dawn. It was the most beautiful Terra rotation I've ever seen in my life, the most beautiful Earth rotation. You wouldn't say that. You would say it was the most beautiful sunrise that I've ever seen. You would say that the sun rose, you would not say that the Earth turned. So you all know that it's the revolution of the Earth that causes us to go from night to day, from darkness to light, but that truth does not end up being a functional category that controls what comes out of your mouth at the popular level. Instead, you have a functional worldview that controls how you think. And your functional worldview goes a little bit like this. Everything happens in this universe in relation to us. And therefore, the sun circles us. It rises, it sets, not we go around it. And that functional worldview overrides your theoretical one, the one that you think about. And so the category of a heliocentric solar system sort of gets glued onto the way that you actually live, unless you're in astrophysics. Let's take another example. God is very clear in Matthew chapter 5, 45. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. But you and I live in a modern world. We live in a modern world with a modern worldview that says the natural world exists on its own and that it exists independent of any deity and that this world is subject to natural laws and natural forces. That's what we mean by a naturalistic worldview. So when we have rain, people say what? It is raining. You've said that, I've said that, everyone says that. But think about that phrase, it is raining, and ask yourself, what exactly is raining? What's the it here that's raining? And when you ask that question, you realize that we have depersonalized rain, we've depersonalized weather. Our language assumes that there is no personal benevolence behind it. And so you and I can come to church, and we do, and we learn, and we teach our children, and our children learn that God is the creator of all that there is, that there is only rain because he made it. He's the creator of all that there is. We also learn he's the sustainer of all that there is, that we only keep having rain because he keeps providing it. We all know that, but no one, no one pops open an umbrella and says, God is making rain today. No one says that. Now, what's that tell you? It tells you that the categories of God as creator and God as sustainer are nice categories. They're nice, but not necessary. Not necessary ones that functionally control how we go about describing our world. They are glued on to a more dominant worldview. And that's my fear for today. That we can talk about the wonderful, rich categories of sin, judgment, sacrificial atonement, and you will agree with them. 
but then you'll take them and you'll glue them on to a different worldview from the one that scripture gives you. And therefore, you will not use them the rest of this week. You won't use them to process your world. They'll be nice, but not necessary. And that means that you won't have the categories in your worldview to actually understand what's going on in this larger world. You won't know what's going on in this larger world. You won't know what to do with the things that you see in this larger world. You will be just like the sailors throughout Jonah chapter 1. The sailors are good, decent men. They're actually much more righteous than God's chosen prophet. Jonah was willing to let an entire city, Nineveh, 120,000 people, was willing to let that entire city die rather than try to help him, help them. The sailors, on the other hand, work really hard in today's passage, verse 13, to preserve one life. They risk their lives to try to preserve one person's life. They are much better than Jonah is. Jonah hasn't once prayed throughout John, uh, Jonah chapter 1. Can't be bothered to reach out to God. The sailors, when they understand that this is who, the God, who God is, they cry out in verse 14. More than that, they end up worshiping the Lord in verse 16. They're far more righteous than Jonah. They are good, decent men who have no idea what's going on in the world and no idea how to respond to it. When God's judgment in the storm first breaks, verse 4, they don't know why. They each cry out to their own gods, verse 5. They have competing worldviews. They each have their own god. They all cry out to their own gods, and none of those worldviews work. The storm keeps on going. They don't know how to assess what's going on. They don't know what to do. They try to save themselves from God's judgment, verse 5. They throw away their cargo, verse 13. They try to row back to land. None of those things work. They don't know what to do. They have no idea who or what is to blame. So in verse 7, in desperation, they cast lots. Try a little magic, a little superstition. Let's see if we can figure this out. They are clueless as to how to understand their world. And even when they know who's to blame, they still don't know what to do. And so finally, verse 11, they turn to the one who has the words of God, and they ask him, what are we supposed to do? Good, decent men who cannot live well in this world until they finally have the words of God because their functional worldview, the way that they understand the world has not been shaped, it's not been informed by how God sees the world and God doesn't want that for you. Here's the goodness of God. What does God do? He gives you the book of Jonah. He's trying very intentionally to under, help you understand how to live well in this world, to understand how this world works, to see why it does so, to see what you're supposed to do in response to what it is that you're seeing gives you the book of Jonah, not to tell you a story about a fish. Gives you the book of Jonah to offer you a worldview that's an alternative to any other one that you already have. He's trying to give you a fundamentally different way of understanding yourself, of understanding everything around you. A way that is different from the way that you find anywhere else, in anything else, any other religion, any other philosophy. So he's not trying to add elements, not trying to glue little truth nuggets to your otherwise fully developed secular worldview. He's trying to replace it, trying to replace the way that you see the world with the way that he does. And that means then that you have to give yourself to this process of letting his understanding reshape you. That's what we're doing here Sunday morning. That's why we have a teaching section. 
It's why we have CGs where we discuss these things and we try to get ourselves on board with where God is. It's why we have children and youth ministry. We are intentionally unpacking how God sees the world so that we can develop a worldview that lines up with his. And that means that this is really critical time for you right now. You need to be engaged right now. You have to be engaged. You have to be mentally sharp. You have to be aware. You have to be paying attention. You have to be taking notes. You have to make time later to talk these things out with other people, with the people around you, trying to wrestle with these things so that they become part of who you are. You have to give yourself to this process of letting God's view of the world reshape your own. Now, I'll be honest with you, that can often be unsettling because you discover that he does not always agree with you, that he puts things into categories that you don't necessarily like at first. But if you stay with him, if you track with him, what you're going to discover is that he doesn't discount what you care about. He doesn't not care about what you care about. He cares very much what you care about. But the way that he cares is by bringing in a whole lot of other things that you didn't even begin to consider. And if you stay with him, and if you understand what he's actually doing, you realize he's crafting a much better world for you than you would ever want for yourself. I hope that you've been able to see that as we've been going through the book of Jonah so far. We saw week one that God does not envision a world where you simply love your neighbor as yourself, where you love people who love you. Instead, he envisions a world where you love your enemies, where you do to them what actually you would want done to you. He's creating a beautiful world. Or week two, you learn to see that your life is so deeply intertwined with the lives of the people around you that God is envisioning a world where you care more for the common good of society than most of us in the West have been taught to care. Where last week we saw that your primary, primary identity does not come from things that are external to you. It doesn't come from your ethnicity, from your maleness, from your femaleness, from your occupation, from where you live. It doesn't come from anything in all of creation, anything that could be taken away from you. It comes because he loves you and holds you in his hand. And because he loves you, you don't have to get your value and worth out of all of those other very important things. You can enter into them and enjoy them because your worth as a human being does not depend on them. He's crafting a beautiful world for you. Embrace those categories. Don't just stick them onto a pre-existing worldview. Embrace them and they will reshape how you think about life. They'll reshape how you actually engage the rest of life. That's what they're supposed to do. That's why he's given us the scripture. Now, that's introduction. I'm not going to be long for the rest. I want us to think very briefly then about one core element of this developing worldview, about the judgment of God. I want us to understand that the judgment of God needs to sit at the very heart of our worldview. And that if it does, it will reshape the way that we understand ourselves and understand how to live here. So we're going to consider this just from three different perspectives, again, very quickly this morning. First, we're going to consider the unrelenting nature of God's judgment. Second, the inescapability of God's judgment. And then third, the satisfaction of God's judgment. So think about how his judgment is unrelenting, how it's inescapable. And then what does it take to actually satisfy it? 
First, the unrelenting nature of God's judgment. God started executing his judgment in verse four. He hurled a violent wind onto the sea that threatens to break apart the ship. And so far, nothing that the sailors have done has made, improved the situation. In fact, things are now worse. Verse 11, the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Verse 13, it continued growing more and more tempestuous, rougher and rougher against them. And you read through the chapter and discover there's a progression. God's judgment starts really, really bad. And then it starts increasing over time. It gets worse. And you learn here that once you arouse God's judgment, it does not quiet down on its own. It doesn't blow itself out. It does not go away just because you ignore it. Instead, it's unrelenting. Have that at the center of your worldview and you realize that challenges the way that we think in the modern world. We're used to a world in which if you ignore things that you don't like, or if you take yourself out of the mix, then what? Unpleasant things often go away. Or at least the people that you've sinned against, they get tired of chasing you and eventually they leave you alone. I don't know when the last time was that you changed your phone number or you got a new one. I haven't done this for a while, but each time that our family has over the years, we just got hammered with phone calls for about six months on that new line. And, and they were all, all those calls were asking for the same unknown person that we never heard of. Calls from credit agencies, collection agencies, legal agencies. You start to realize that the person who had had that number skipped out on something some liability, some responsibility, and they were ignoring the coming judgment. Well, that was annoying for us for six months or so, but I learned something in that process. Because you start to realize that at least in the case of creditors, that the primary lender would often sell the debt. They didn't see it as worth their while to continue pursuing it, so they sold it to somebody else whose job was to see if they could make good on that debt. In other words, if you outlast people, sometimes you can make Judgments go away. You can hide well enough in this world so that some of those things just go, to, go away because it's too much trouble to track you down. Eventually, even the legal agencies stopped calling us. They moved on to someone else. That's not the same as God's judgment. It doesn't go away. It increases. Now, why is that? To understand that, you have to back up and you have to understand what sin is. That sin rejects God's goodness. It rejects the way that God treats people and it rejects the way that God treats his world. It does not think that his way is best. It thinks some other way is better. And so sin acts to create a different kind of world that it thinks is better than the world that God has in mind. But you can't be better than perfect goodness. So when you sin, when you live differently in God's universe than he does, you actually bring his universe down. You make a less good world than there was before. You've taken some of the goodness out of the world that actually should be there. And you did that, how? You introduced badness into that world that should not be there. And that's where judgment comes in. Judgment is God breaking into his world and dealing with the holes that sin makes in his goodness. And judgment deals with that, those holes in two ways. First, it acts to remove sin from the world. It acts to get rid of that evil. But second, it then acts to make up for the lost goodness. It makes a payment, demands a payment, so that something closes the gap between 
what should have been and what ended up being. So if you want to make the world good again, the badness has to be removed, the goodness has to be restored, the debt has to be repaid. That's what judgment is interested in accomplishing. Now, that may be new for some of us. It was not new to the sailors. They completely understood that that makes sense. That worldview makes sense to them. They understood that since Jonah rejected God, something now has to balance the books because of his sin. And so they asked Jonah, verse 11, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? How do we make this right with God? Your disobedience has created a problem in the cosmos. You created a sin debt, a goodness hole. You were not good when you were supposed to be, and you've been evil when you should not have been. You have sinned. So now what do we need to do to you to get rid of this judgment against your sin? They understand what moderns don't. That once begun, God's judgment is unrelenting until sin has been removed and the sin debt has been paid. They get point one, that God's judgment is unrelenting. But they don't get point two, that God's judgment is inescapable. They ask verse 11, what shall we do to you? And Jonah tells them, verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. And that's not the kind of answer that they were looking for. Whatever it was that they were expecting that they could actually do to him to pay for his sin, this was not it. And so verse 13, the men rode hard to get back to dry ground. They have in mind that if they can just get Jonah back to that place where he can take over, where he has some control, well, he can take it from there. Now, do they have in mind that judgment will follow him and leave them alone? Are they thinking that maybe he can escape the storm if he's on land? You know, sure, it'll be rough, but it won't kill him there. Or maybe he can restart his journey at that point. Just head for Nineveh this time, you know, kind of like a do-over. And oops, oops, shouldn't have done that. Should not have walked away from the presence of God. Should not have plotted the death of 120,000 people. Oops, uh, my bad. How about I retrace my steps to where I went off the rails and we just start again from there. That also is the kind of thinking that fits into the modern world. It's kind of like our bankruptcy laws. Basically that say you made some bad decisions, it's gonna cost you, but jump through these hoops and you can start all over again. Or it fits into the way a lot of married people think. Like when one person does something pretty horrible and their spouse is struggling to trust them and to be open to trusting them and the one who did the wrong says, oh, come on, I said I was sorry. Let's just go back to where we were and start again. Only the spouse who's been wronged knows that that's not where they are anymore, that they're not at that same place, that they've actually gone backwards in the trust department, that there is a negative trust, that the relationship has to be rebuilt from that negative place, that you can't just start where you left off. You can't pick up like nothing happened. It's kind of like what the sailors want. They want to take Jonah back to dry land, let him go from there. They think that his belief, his belief that God's judgment requires his life, they think that's a little too extreme. They think they can avoid that requirement. 
They can find a loophole, that they can find an escape from the demands of justice, and so they try rowing back to land, and the storm gets worse. And you learn here that human effort cannot make God's judgment go away. Jonah cannot start from a clean slate just by going back to where he was. First, sin has to be removed from God's world, and that outstanding debt has to be made up. Until then, God's judgment is inescapable. So if point one, God's judgment is unrelenting, and point two, it's inescapable, then point three, is there anything that can satisfy it? And the answer is yes. That's been the answer throughout scripture. Ever since our first parents sinned in the Garden of Eden, we have learned that God will accept a substitute, a sacrifice that will absorb his judgment against sin and that will remove sin from you so there's no more judgment. If there's no more sin, there's no more reason to judge you. One of the times when God was explaining to people how this worked, he told his people in Leviticus chapter 16 that there's going to be a special day, a day of atonement, a day every year when atonement was made for the sins of all the people. And on that day, the Israelites were to bring him two goats. One of the goats they killed. They sacrificed it to pay the debt that sin had created. The second goat was called the scapegoat. And the priest was to lay his hands on the head of the goat and to place the sin of the people on the goat. And then they led the goat out into the wilderness and the goat left with the sin of the people and wandered to a remote place far, far, far away from the people. It took their sin from them. Now, what do you see here in Jonah? We see a little bit more understanding of actually what's taking place. And you see the two goats overlapping in Jonah. Jonah pays the price of his sin by sacrificing his life. And at the same moment, simultaneously, he carries sin away from the rest of the community. Sin is no longer in the presence of the sailors. He bears the penalty for his sin and he removes sin from them. And when he does that immediately, verse 15, the sea ceases from raging. One of the commentators says that his sacrifice turns the storm off like a light switch. Why is that? There's no more need for judgment. The sea raging was the judgment of God. That once that sin has been paid for, once the sin has been removed, God's justice is satisfied. There's no more wrath. There's no more anger. There's no more judgment. That's what the goats were trying to tell you back in Leviticus 16. That once atonement is made, once sin is paid for, once sin is removed, there's no more judgment from God. No more wrath, no more anger. The way to him now is open. There's nothing to be in the way any longer because what was causing the problem has now been taken away. Now, obviously, the goats in Leviticus were pointing forward to something else. They were a sacrifice that had to be repeated year after year after year after year after year after year. They had to be repeated because their blood just wasn't good enough to make up for what God's people had done. They weren't the real sacrifice that could pay for human sin. They were a placeholder, if you want to think about it that way. They were a placeholder for the real sacrifice. They were a promise from God that there was a sacrifice coming that would be good enough. They were a placeholder, Jonah, 
ends up being a placeholder. We learn in passages like Ezekiel 18, verse 20, that the soul that sins shall die. Sin brings death. We learned that from Genesis 2 onward. The soul that sins shall die. Genesis 3, maybe. But just because sin brings death does not mean that death pays for sin. It can't. When you sin against an infinitely good God, you ring up an infinite debt. No finite human being can pay off an infinite debt. You can't, I can't, Jonah couldn't. Jonah couldn't even if he wanted to, and it's not super clear that he wanted to. He told the sailors, verse 12, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. This is the prophet who has the word of the Lord. Obviously that comes true in verse 15. But if he knows what will calm the sea, why doesn't he do it? There's nothing preventing him from throwing himself into the sea. Why make someone else do it? Why wait, verse 13, while they row themselves into a bigger mess? Why, verse 15, force them to pick him up and throw him in when he could have thrown himself in? You realize he's reluctant. This is not an altruistic man who volunteers to sacrifice himself for the sake of others. He is not the real sacrifice. He's a placeholder. It's not the real sacrifice, but he points you in the right direction and he shows you what the real sacrifice will be like. He tells you about the nature of sacrificial atonement. For that, you have to wait to get to Jesus. Now, all along, we've been seeing that Jesus is the anti-Jonah. Jesus is the one who hears God say, arise, go to that wicked place, earth, and cry out against it. And Jesus does that. He comes and warns us of judgment. Jesus is the one who doesn't fall asleep, doesn't get distracted while he's here. He cries out to God multiple times in prayer for us. Jesus is the one who never forgets his real identity. He is God's son who brings God's radical grace to people who hate him. And Jesus is the one who doesn't need anyone to throw him into the sea. He didn't hold himself back from the death that he knew was coming. He knew what was waiting for him in Jerusalem. He told his disciples he was going there to be handed over to the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They would flog him, they would kill him, and he would rise from the third day. He knew all of that, and he set himself determined to go there anyway. Jesus is the one who volunteered to sacrifice himself, to pay that infinite cost to make up for what you and I owe so that he could take our sin away from us. So that what? So that you and I, verse 16, would worship. So that we would rightly fear this God who judges sin, this God who then pays what we could never pay ourselves, and who pays so completely that in an instant there is no trace of judgment, no trace of anger. He pays so that we would be in awe of him, and yet that we would come to dare to come close to him because we would realize, wow, if there's no judgment, then he's actually what he's inviting us to come close. Now, I said earlier, this has to be at the heart of your worldview, not just glued on to a different one. So let's think for just a moment, very briefly, what difference would that make? What difference would having it at the center make to how you live day to day? What difference will it make, it, will it make this afternoon? Well, think about it. What would be different if you knew that everything you've ever done wrong is paid for and that what you've done wrong will not cling to you for eternity? How would that affect your outlook on life? Let's just take one illustration. 
Don't you think you'd be less fearful of what other people think of you? I have a friend, she told me one time that the predominant message from her parents growing up was, you must not embarrass us. Your role as an individual is to make sure that you don't make the community look bad. Now that's a crushing burden to put on anyone. It's a crushing burden to live under. It's crushing because it's not a Christian burden. Why is that? You're going to do things wrong. You're going to do things that reflect poorly on you. You're going to do things that can't help but reflect poorly on everyone around you. But if Jesus switches off God's judgment in an instant, if there is nothing that God still sees to judge in you, you don't have to live under that burden. If God does not think that it reflects poorly on him to have you and his family, then respectfully, who cares what any other family thinks? It doesn't mean that you no longer care about sinning. It means that you care more about what God thinks of you than of what other people think of you. It means their opinion no longer controls you because his opinion now controls you. And because his opinion is what counts, you don't want to sin. Not because you're afraid that you're going to make somebody look bad, but you realize he doesn't love sin. And if this one who sacrificed himself for you does not love something, why on earth would you be attracted to it? Put sin, judgment, and atonement at the center of your worldview and you will be less, less afraid of what other people think of you. You'll be less worried, less anxious that they might find something out that you've done wrong. You'll end up confessing your sins more quickly. You'll feel less guilty, but you'll hate sin more. You'll stop trying to pay for what you've done to make up for it. You will end up being more open, more honest, more joy-filled, more lighter. You'll end up being more happy. If your sin is gone, there's no judgment. There's nothing that will ever get in between you and God again. You'll be more courageous and bolder. Do you see why God wants to offer you a different worldview? It's because it gives you a different view of him. If you embrace that view, if you embrace him, it will change the way that you live the rest of this week. Let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you that you are a God who judges sin. Thank you that you are a God who does not just sweep it under the carpet. Thank you that you judge sin, but thank you that you have paid the penalty that we deserve. Lord God, I pray for my brothers and sisters that that would be at the heart of how we live today. I pray that it would impact how we go about living tomorrow. I pray that it would impact the way we live with our families, our housemates, our neighbors. I pray that it would impact how we live at work. And I pray, Lord, that it would be so radically different that it would communicate to other people, here's a real God who really can help. Lord, do this, please, for the sake of your name, that you would be honored and glorified that much more. In Jesus' name, amen.